The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath by H.P. Lovecraft, Part 3. At last, in the fearsome iciness of upper space, he came around fully to the hidden side of Nagarek and saw in infinite gulfs below him the lesser crags and sterile abysses of lava, which mark the olden wrath of the Great Ones. There was unfolded too a vast expanse of country to the south, but it was a desert land without fair fields or cottage chimneys and seemed to have no ending. No trace of the sea was visible on this side, for Oriav is a great island. Black caverns and odd crevices were still numerous on the sheer vertical cliffs, but none of them was accessible to a climber. The Nile loomed aloft a great beetling mass which hampered the upward view. And Carter was for a moment shaken with doubt lest it prove impassable. Poised in windy insecurity, miles above earth, with only space and death on one side and only slippery walls of rock on the other, he knew for a moment the fear that makes men shun Nagarek sit inside. He could not turn around, yet the sun was already low. If there were no way aloft, the night would find him, crouching there still, and the dawn would not find him at all. But there was a way, and he saw it in due season. Only a very expert dreamer could have used those imperceptible footholds. Yet to Carter, they were sufficient. Surmounting now the outward hanging rock, he found the slope above much easier than that below. Since a great glacier's melting had left a generous space, to the left a precipice dropped straight from unknown heights to unknown depths, with a cave's dark mouth just out of reach above him. Elsewhere, however, the mountain slanted back strongly, and even gave him space to lean and rest. He felt from the chill that he must be near to the snow line, and looked up to see that glittering pinnacles might be shining on that late ruddy sunlight. Surely enough, there was the snow uncounted thousands of feet above, and below it a great beetling crag like that he had just climbed. Hanging there forever in bold outline, black against the white of the frozen peak. And when he saw that crag, he gasped and cried out aloud, and clutched at the jagged rock in awe. For the titan bulge had not stayed as earth's dawn had shaped it, but gleamed red and stupendous. For the titan bulge had not stayed as earth's dawn had shaped it, but gleamed red and stupendous in the sunset, with the carved and polished features of a god. Stern and terrible shone that face that the sunset lit with fire. How vast it was, no mind can ever measure. But Carter knew at once that man can never have fashioned it. It was a god chiseled by the hands of the gods, and it looked haughty and majestic upon the seeker. Rumor had said it was strange, and not to be mistaken, and Carter saw that it was indeed so. For those long, narrow eyes and long-lobed ears, and that thin nose and pointed chin, all spoke of a race that is not of men, but of gods. He clung, overawed, in that lofty and perilous eerie, even though it was this which he had expected to come and find. For there is, in a god's face, more of marvel than prediction can tell. For there is, in a god's face, more of marvel than prediction can tell. And when that face is vaster than a great temple, and seen looking down at sunset in the cryptic silences of that upper world, from whom stark lava it was divinely hewn of old. The marvel is so strong that none may escape it. There too was the added marvel of recognition. For although he had planned to search all dreamland over for those whose likeness to this face might mark them as God's children, he now knew that he need not do so. Certainly the great face carven on that mountain was of no strange sort. But the kin of such he had seen often in the taverns of the seaport Selepharis, which lies in Uth-Nargai, beyond the Ternarian hills, and is ruled over by that king Karanes, whom Carter once knew in waking life. Every year sailors with such a face came in dark ships from the north to trade their onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Selepharis, and it was clear that these could be no other than the half-gods he sought. Where they dwelt there must be the cold waste lie close, and within it unknown Kadath and its onyx castle for the great ones. So to Selepharis he must go, 
far distant from the Isle of Oriam, and in such parts as would take him back to Dilathleen, and up the sky to the bridge by near, and again into the enchanted wood of the Zoogs, whence the way would bend northward, through the garden lands of Orkonos and gilded spires of Thrawn where he might find a galleon bound over the Serenarian Sea. But dusk was now thick, and the great carven face looked down, even sterner in shadow. Perched on that ledge, night found the seeker, and in the blackness he might neither go down nor go up, but only stand and cling and shiver in that narrow place till the day came, praying to keep awake lest sleep lose his hold and send him down the dizzy miles of air to the crags and sharp rocks of the accursed valley. The stars came out, but save for them, there was only black nothingness in his eyes. Nothingness laid with death, against whose beckoning he might do no more than cling to the rocks and lean back away from an unseen. The last thing of earth that he saw in the gloaming was a condor, soaring close to the westward precipice beside him, and darting, screaming away when it came near a cave whose mouth yawned just out of reach. Suddenly, without a warning sound in the dark, Carter felt his curved scimitar drawn stealthily out of his belt by some unseen hand. Then he heard it clatter down over the rocks below, and between him and the Milky Way, he thought he saw a very terrible outline of something noxiously thin and horned and tailed and bat-winged. Other things, too, had begun to blot out patches of stars west of him, as if a flock of vague entities were flapping thickly and silently out of that inaccessible cave in the face of the precipice. Then a sort of cold, rubbery arm seized his neck, and something else seized his feet, and he was lifted inconsiderably up and swung about in space. Another minute and the stars were gone, and Carter knew that the night gaunts had got him. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery and their paws needed one detestably. Soon they were plunging hideously downward through inconceivable abysses in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank tomb-like air. Then he saw a sort of gray phosphorescence about and guessed that they were coming even to that inner world of subterranean horror of which dim legends tell, in which is litten only by the pale deathfire wherewith reeks the ghoulish air and the primal mists of the pits at Earth's core. At last, far below him, he saw the faint lines of gray and ominous pinnacles, which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Thok. Awful and sinister, they stand in the haunted dusk of sunless and eternal depths, higher than man may reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the beholds crawl and burrow nastily. But Carter preferred to look at them then at his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black beings with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward towards each other, bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly prehensile paws and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquieting. And worst of all, they never spoke or laughed. They never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only suggestive blankness where the face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of the night gaunts. As the band flew over the peaks of Thok, rose gray and towering on all sides, and one saw clearly that nothing lived in that austere and impassive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, the death fires in the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void, save aloft where the thin peaks stood out goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing but great rushing winds with the dankness of nethermost grottoes in them. Then, in the end, the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things, which felt like layers of bones, and left Carter all alone in that black alley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts that guard Nagarek. And this done, they flapped away silently. When Carter tried to trace their flight, he found he could not, since even the peaks of Thok had faded out of sight. 
There was nothing anywhere but blackness and horror and silence and bone. Now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Panath. There, where crawl and burrow the enormous beholes. But he did not know what to expect because no one has ever seen a behole or even guessed what such a thing may be like. Beholes are known only by dim rumor, from the rustling they make amongst mountains of bones and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen because they creep only in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a behole, so listened intently for any sound in the unknown depths of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place, he had a plan and an objective, for whispers of Panath and its approaches were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old ways. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of their feastings and that if he but had good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag, taller even than Thox Peaks, which marks the edge of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found, he could call to a ghoul and let down a ladder. For strange to say, he had very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler parts of their disgusting meeping and glibbering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure, but that he might find him now and use for the first time in the dreamlands, that faraway English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt that he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Panath, and it would be better to meet a ghoul, which one can see, than a behole, which one cannot see. So Carter walked in the dark and ran when he thought he heard something among the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope and knew it must be the base of one of Thok's peaks, then at last he heard a monstrous rattling and clatter which reached far up in the air and became sure he had come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realized that the inner world has strange laws. As he pondered, he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull. And therefore, realizing his nearness to the fateful crag, he sent up as best he might that meeping cry, which was the call of the ghouls. Sound traveled slowly, so that it was some time before he heard an answering glibber. But it came at last, and before long he was told that a rope ladder would be lowered. The wait for this was very tense, since there was no telling what might not have been stirred up among those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, he became more and more uncomfortable, for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable, and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping, he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed emphatic, and it was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder from below. At a height which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, he felt the whole side brush by a great slippery length, alternately convex and concave with wriggling, and thereafter he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed behold whose form no man sees. For hours he climbed with aching arms and blistered hands, seeing again the grave death fire and Thok's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last he discerned above him the projecting edge of the great crag of the ghouls, whose vertical side he could not glimpse. And hours later he saw a curious face peering over it as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness. 
but a moment later he was himself again, for his vanished friend, Richard Pickman, had once introduced him to a ghoul, and he knew well their canine faces and slumped forms, and unmentionable idiosyncrasy. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzy emptiness, over the edge of the cray, and did not scream at the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side or at the squatting circles of ghouls who nod and watch curiously. He now on a dim litten plain whose sole topographical feature were great boulders and the entrances of burrows. The ghouls were in general respectful. Even if one did attempt to pinch him, the ghouls were in general respectful. Even if one did attempt to pinch him while several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient glibbering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend and found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in abysses near the waking world. A greenish elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pickman's present habitation. So, despite a natural loathing, he followed the creature into a capacious burrow and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mold. They emerged on a dim plain strewn with singular relics of earth, old gravestones, broken urns, and grotesque fragments of monuments. And Carter realized with some emotion he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down several hundred steps from the cavern of flame to the gate of deeper slumber. There on the tombstone of 1768 stolen from the granary burying ground in Boston sat the ghoul which was once artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery and acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy that its human origin was already obscure but it still remembered a little English, and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the gibbering of the ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get to the Enchanted Wood, and there to the city Selifaris and Uth Nargai beyond the Ternarian Hills, it seemed rather doubtful, for these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamlands, leaving that to the web-footed womps that are spawned in dead cities. And many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the enchanted wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs, hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos near Olathe, until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods, and they were banished to the caverns below. Only a great trapdoor of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the earth ghouls with the enchanted wood, and this the gugs are afraid to open because of a curse. That a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by that door is inconceivable, for mortal dreamers were their former food, and they have legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers, even though banishment has restricted their diet to the gas, those repulsive beings which die in the light and which live in the vaults of Zin and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter to either leave the abyss at Sarkamand or at Sarkamand that deserted city in the valley below Lang where black nitrous stairways guarded by winged diorite lions lead down from dreamland to the lower gulfs or to return through a churchyard to the waking world and begin the quest anew down the 70 steps of light slumber to the cavern of flame and the 700 steps to the gate of deeper slumber and the enchanted wood this, however, did not suit the seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Lang to Uthnargai, and was likewise reluctant to awake, lest he forget all he had so far gained in this dream. It were disastrous to his quest to forget the august and the celestial faces of those seamen from the north who traded onyx in Selifaris, and who, being the sons of gods, must point the way to that cold waste at Kadoth where the Great Ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the Great Wall of the Gug's Kingdom. There was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers in an hour when the giants would be all gorged and snoring indoors, and reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which 
has the stairs leading to that stone trap door in the enchanted wood. Pikmin even consented to lend three ghouls to help with a tombstone lever in raising the stone door. Four of the ghouls, the gugs, are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise as a ghoul himself, shaving the beard he allowed to grow, for ghouls have none and wallowing naked in the mold to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way, with his clothing carried in a bundle as if it were a choice morsel from the tomb. They would reach the city of the Gugs, which is coterminous in the whole kingdom, through the proper burrows emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair-containing Tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive gas are always on watch there, murderously for those denizens of the upper abyss who hunt and prey on them. The gas try to come out when the gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as gugs, for they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive, and eat one another. The gugs have a sentry at a narrow place in the vaults of Zin. But he is often drowsy, and is sometimes surprised by a party of gas. Though gas cannot live in real light, they can endure the gray twilight of the abyss for hours. So at length Carter crawled through the endless burrows with three helpful ghouls bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nehemiah Derby, obituary 1719, from the Charter Strait burying ground in Salem. When they came again into open twilight, they were in the forest of vast lichen monoliths, reaching nearly as high as the eye could see and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs. On the right of the hole out of which they wriggled and seen through aisles of monoliths was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers, mounting up illimitable into the gray air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are 30 feet high. Ghouls come here often, for buried gugs will feed a community for almost a year, and even with the added peril, it is better to burrow for gugs than to bother with the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional tightened bones he had felt beneath him in the Vale of Panath. Straight ahead and just outside the cemetery rose a sheer perpendicular cliff, at whose base was an immense and forbidding cavern yawn. This the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed vaults of Zin, where gugs hunt gas in the darkness. And truly, that warning was soon well justified, for the moment the ghoul had began to creep toward the tower to see if the hour of the gugs resting had been rightly timed, there glowed in the gloom of the great cavern's mouth first one pair of yellowish red eyes, then another implying that the gugs were one century less and the gas have indeed an excellent sharpness of smell. So the ghouls returned to the burrow and motioned for his companion to be silent. It was best to leave the gas to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw, since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with a gug sentry in the black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the gray twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human, despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow, and a ghoul, glibbering softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired, and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy, disproportioned animals, and soon numbered about fifteen, rubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the gray twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose, but it was still more unpleasant when they spoke among themselves in the coughing gutturals of gas. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw, 
fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black-furred arm, to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. But the head was chiefly terrible because of the- that mouth had a great yellow fang that ran the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before the unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to its full twenty feet, the vindictive gasps were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all his kin, till a ghoul softly glibbered that the Gugs have no voice, but talk by means of facial expression. The battle which then ensued was truly frightful one. From all sides the venomous gas rushed feverishly at the creeping Gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles and mauling murderously with their hard pointed hooves. All the time they coughed excitedly, screaming when great vertical mouths of the Gug would bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern as it was. The tumult soon receded altogether from the sight in the blackness, and with only occasional evil echoes to mark its continuance. Then the most alert of the ghouls gave the signal for all to advance and Carter followed the loping three out of the forest of Monolis and into the dark noisome streets of that awful city whose rounded towers of cyclopean stone soared up beyond the sight. Silently they shambled over that rough rock pavement, hearing with disgust the abominable muffled snorings from great black doorways which marked the slumber of the Gugs. Apprehensive of the ending of the rest hour, the ghouls set a somewhat rapid pace, but even so the journey was no brief one, for distances in that town of giants were on great scale. At last, however, they came to a somewhat open space, before a tower even vaster than the rest. Above those colossal doorway was fixed a monstrous symbol in boss relief, which made one shudder without knowing its meaning. This was the central tower, the sign of Koth, and those huge stone steps just visible through the dusk within were the beginning of the great flight leading to the upper dreamland and the enchanted wood. There now began a climb of interminable length in utter blackness made almost impossible by the monstrous size of the steps, which were fashioned for gugs and were therefore nearly a yard high. Of their number, Carter could form no just estimate, for he soon became so worn that the tireless and elastic ghouls were forced to aid him. Although all through the endless climb there lurked the peril of detection and pursuit. For though no gug dares lift the stone door to the forest because of the Great One's curse, there are no such restraints concerning the tower and the steps, and escaped gas are often chased even to the very top. So sharp are the ears of Gugs that the bare feet and hands of the climbers might readily be heard when the city awoke, and it would of course take but little time for the striding giants accustomed from their ghast hunts in the vaults of Zin to seeing without light to overtake their smaller and slower quarry on those cyclopean steps. It was very depressing to reflect that the silent pursuing Gugs would not be heard at all, but would come very suddenly and shockingly in the dark upon the climber. Nor could the traditional fear of Gugs for ghouls be depended upon in that peculiar space where the advantages lay so heavily with the Gugs. There were also there was also peril from the furtive and venomous gas, which frequently hopped up into the tower during the sleep hour of the Gugs. If the Gugs slept long, the gas returned soon from their deed in the cavern. The scent of the climbers might easily be picked up by those loathsome and ill-disposed things, in which case it would almost be better to be eaten by a Gug. Then, after aeons of climbing, there came a cough from the darkness above, and matters assumed a very grave and unexpected turn. It was clear that a gas, or perhaps even more, had strayed into that tower before the coming of Carter and his guides, and it was equally clear that this peril was very close. After a breathless second, the leading ghoul pushed Carter to the wall and arranged his two kinsfolk in the best possible way. 
that the old slate tombstone raised for a crushing blow whenever the enemy might come in sight. Ghouls can see in the dark, so the party was not as badly off as Carter would have been alone. And another moment, the clatter of hooves revealed the downward hopping of at least one beast, and the slab-bearing ghouls poised their weapon for a desperate blow. Presently, two yellowish-red eyes flashed into view, and the panting of the ghast became audible above its clattering. As it hopped down to the step just above the ghouls, they wielded the ancient gravestone with prodigious force, so that there was only a wheeze and a choking before the victim collapsed in noxious heap. There seemed to be only this one animal, and after a moment of listening, the ghouls tapped Carter as a signal to proceed again. As before, they were obliged to aid him, and he was glad to leave that place of carnage, where the ghast's uncouth remains sprawled invisible in the blackness. At last, the ghouls brought their companion to a halt, and Carter realized that the great stone trapdoor was reached at last. To open so vast a thing completely was not to be thought of, but the ghouls hoped it would get up just enough to slip the gravestone under as a prop and permit Carter to escape through the crack. They themselves planned to descend again and return through the city of the Gugs, since their elusiveness was great, and they did not know the way overland to Spectral Star Command, with its lion-guarded gate to the abyss. Mighty was the straining of those three ghouls at the stone of the door above them, and Carter helped push with as much strength as he had. They judged the edge next to the top of the staircase might be the right one, and to this they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. After a few moments, a crack of light appeared, and Carter, to whom that task had been entrusted, slipped the end of the old gravestone in the aperture. There now ensued a mighty heaving, but progress was very slow, and they had, of course, to return to their first position every time they failed to turn the slab and prop the portal open. Suddenly, their desperation was magnified by a thousandfold, by a sound on the steps below. It was only the thumping and rattling of the slain gas hooves' body as it rolled down to lower levels, but of all the possible causes of that body's dislodgement and rolling, None was in the least reassuring. Therefore, knowing the ways of Gugs and the ghouls set with something of a frenzy, and in surprisingly short time, had the door so high that they were able to hold it still, whilst Carter turned the slab and left a generous opening. They now helped Carter through, letting him climb up to their rubbery shoulders, and later guiding his feet as he clutched at the blessed soil of the upper dreamland outside. Another second, and they were through themselves, knocking away the gravestone and closing the great trap door, while panting became audible beneath. Because of the Great One's curse, no gug might ever emerge from that portal. So, with a deep relief and sense of repose, Carter lay quietly in the thick, grotesque fungi of the enchanted wood, while his guide squatted near in the manner that ghouls rest. Weird was that enchanted wood through which he had fared so long ago. It was verily a haven and a delight after the gulfs he had now left behind. There was no living denizen about, for Zug shunned the mysterious door in fear, and Carter at once consulted with his ghouls about their future course. To return through the tower they no longer dared, and the waking world did not appeal to them when they learned that they must pass the priest Nosht and Kamantha in the Cavern of Flame. So at length they decided to return to Sarkomand and its Gate of the Abyss, though of how to get there they knew nothing. Carter recalled it lies in the valley below Lang, and recalled likewise that he had seen in Dilathleen a sinister old merchant reputed to trade in Lang. Therefore he advised the ghouls to seek out Dilathleen, crossing the fields to Nier and the sky, and follow the river to its mouth. This they at once resolved to do, and lost no time lopping off, since the thickening of the dusk promised a full night ahead for travel, and Carter shook the paws of those repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help and sending his gratitude to the beast which was once Pikmin, but could not help sighing with pleasure when they left. For a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best an unpleasant companion for man. After that, Carter sought a forest pool and cleansed himself of the mud of the nether earth, thereupon reassuming the clothes he had so carefully carried. 
It was now night in that redoubtable wood of monstrous trees, but because of the phosphorescence, one might travel as well as by day. Wherefore, Carter set out upon the well-known route towards Selifaris and Uthnargai beyond the Tarnarian hills. And as he went, he thought of the zebra he had left tethered to an ash tree on Nagarek in faraway Oriam so many eons ago. He wondered if any lava gatherer had fed and released it, and he wondered too if he would ever return to Baharna to pay for the zebra that was slain by night in those ancient ruins by Yas shores, and if the old tavern keeper would remember him. Such were the thoughts that came to him and the air of the regained upper dreamland. But presently his progress is halted by a sound from a very large hollow tree. He had avoided the great circle of stones since he did not care to speak with Zugs just now, but it appeared from the singular fluttering in that huge tree that important councils were in session elsewhere. Upon drawing nearer, he made out the accents of a tense and heated discussion, and before long became conscious of matters which he viewed with the greatest concern, for war on the cats was under debate in that sovereign assembly of Zugs. It all came from the loss of the party which had sneaked after Carter to Ulthar, in which the cats had justly punished for unsuitable intentions. The matter had long rankled, and now, or within at least a month, the marshaled Zugs were about to strike the whole feline tribe in a series of surprise attacks, taking individual cats or groups of cats unawares, and giving not even the myriad cats of Uthar a proper chance to drill and mobilize. This was the plan of the Zoogs, and Carter saw that he must foil it before leaving in his mighty quest. Very quietly, therefore, did Randolph Carter steal to the edge of the wood and send cry of the cat over the starlit fields. And a great Gremelkin in a nearby cottage took up the burden and relayed it across leagues of rolling meadow to warriors large and small black, gray, tiger, white, yellow, and mixed, and it echoed through near and beyond the sky even into Ulthar, and Ulthar's numerous cats called in chorus and fell into a line of march. It was fortunate that the moon was not up, so that all cats were on earth. Swiftly and silently leaping, they sprang from every hearth and housetop, and poured in a great furry sea across the plains to the edge of the wood. Carter was there to greet them, and the sight of shapely, wholesome cats was indeed good for his eyes, after the things had seen and walked with the abyss. He was glad to see his venerable friend and one-time rescuer at the head of Ulthar's detachment. A collar of rank around his sleek neck, and whiskers bristled and martial angle. Better still, as a sub-lieutenant in that army, was a brisk young fellow who proved to be none other than the very little kitten at the inn whom Carter had given a saucer of rich cream on that long vanished morning in Ulthar. He was a strapping and promising cat now, and purred as he shook hand with his friend. His grandfather said he was doing well in the army, and that he might well expect captaincy after one more campaign. Carter now outlined the peril of the cat tribe, and was rewarded by deep-throated purrs of gratitude from all sides. Consulting with the generals, he prepared a plan of instant action, which involved marching at once upon the Zoo Council and other known strongholds of Zoos, forestalling their surprise attacks and forcing them to terms before the mobilization of their army of invasion. Thereupon, without a moment's loss, that great ocean of cats flooded the enchanted wood and surged around the council tree in the great stone circle. Flutterings rose to panic pitch as the enemy saw the newcomers, and there was very little resistance among the furtive and curious brown zoogs. They saw that they were beaten in advance and, and turned from thoughts of vengeance to thoughts of present self-preservation. Half the cats now seated themselves in a circular formation with the captured zoogs in the center, leaving open a lane down which were marched the additional captives rounded up by the other cats in other parts of the wood. Terms were discussed at length, Carter acting as interpreter, and it was decided that the Zoogs might remain a free tribe on condition of rendering to the cats large annual tribute of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the less fabulous parts of their forest. 
twelve young Zoogs of noble families were taken as hostages to be kept in the Temple of the Cats at Ulthar, and the victors made it plain that any disappearances of cats on the borders of the Zoog domain would be followed by consequences, highly disastrous to Zoogs. These matters disposed of, the assembled cats broke ranks and permitted the Zoogs to slink off one by one to their respective homes which they hastened to do with many a sullen backward glance. The old cat general now offered Carter an escort through the forest to whatever border he wished to reach, deeming it likely that the Zoogs would harbor dire resentment against him for frustration of their warlike enterprise. This offer he welcomed with gratitude, not only for the safety afforded, but because he liked the graceful companionship of cats. So, in the midst of a pleasant and playful regiment, relaxed after the successful performance of its duty, Randolph Carter walked with dignity through that enchanted and phosphorescent wood of titan trees, talking of his quest with the old general and his grandson, whilst others of the band indulged in fantastic gambles or chased fallen leaves that the wind drove among the fungi of the primeval floor. And the old cat, said he had heard much of unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but did not know where it was. As for the marvelous Sunset City, he had not even heard of that, but would gladly relay Carter anything he might later learn. He gave the Seeker some passwords of great value among the cats of Dreamland, and commended him especially to the old chief of the cats in Celepharis, whither he was bound. That old cat, already slightly known to Carter, was a dignified Maltese, and would prove highly influential in any transaction. It was dawn when they came to the proper edge of the wood, and Carter bade his friends a reluctant farewell. The young sub-lieutenant he had met as a small kitten would have followed him had not the old general forbidden it, but that austere patriarch insisted that the path of duty lay within the tribe and the army. So Carter set out over the golden fields that stretched mysterious beside a willow fringe river, and the cats went back into the wood. Well did the traveler know those garden lands that lie betwixt the wood and the Serenarian Sea, and blithely did he follow the singing river Orcanos, and blithely did he follow the singing river Orcanos that marked his course. The sun rose higher over gentle slopes of grove and lawn, and heightened the colors of a thousand flowers that starred each knoll and dingle. A blessed haze lies upon all this region, wherein it held a little more of the sunlight than other places hold, and a little more of the sun's humming music of birds and bees, so that men walk through as through a fairy place, and feel greater joy and wonder than they ever afterward remember. By noon, Carter reached the jasper terraces of Kiran, which sloped down to the river's edge and bare that temple of loveliness wherein King Elekvad comes from his far realm on the twilight sea once a year in a golden palanquin to pray to the gods of Orcanus, who sang to him in youth when he dwelt in a cottage by his banks. All of Jasper is that temple, and covering an acre of ground with its walls and courts and seven pinnacle towers, and its inner shrine where the river enters through hidden channels and the gods sing softly in the night. Many times, many times the moon hears strange music as it shines on those courts and terraces and pinnacles. But whether that music be song of the god or the chant of the cryptical priests, none but the king of Ilekvad may say, for only he has entered the temple or seen the priests. Now in the drowsiness of day, that carven and delicate fane was silent, and Carter heard only the murmur of the great stream and the hum of the birds and bees as he walked onward under an enchanted sun. All that afternoon the pilgrim wandered on through perfume meadows and in the lee of gentle riverward hills bearing peaceful thatched cottages and the shrines of amiable gods carven from jasper or cristobarel. Sometimes he walked close to the bank of Orcanos, whistled to the sprightly and iridescent fish of that crystal stream, and at other times he paused amidst the whispering rushes and gazed at the great dark wood on the farther side. 
whose trains came down clear to the water's edge. In former dreams, he had seen quaint lumbering booboths come shyly out of that wood to drink, and now he could only glimpse in. Once in a while, he paused to watch carnivorous fish catch a fishing bird, which it lured to the water by shooing its tempting scales in the sun, and grasped by the beak with its enormous mouth as the winged hunter sought to dart down upon it. Toward evening, the mounted and low grassy rise. Toward the evening, he mounted a low grassy rise and saw before him, flaming in the sunset, the thousand gilded spires of Thran. Lofty beyond the belief are the alabaster walls of that incredible city. Sloping inward, toward the top and wrought in one solid piece, by what means no man knows, for they are more ancient than memory. Yet lofty as they are in their hundred gates and two hundred turrets, the clustered towers within, all white beneath their golden spires, are loftier still, so that men on the plain around see them soaring into the sky, sometimes shining clear, sometimes caught at the top and tangles of cloud and mist, and sometimes clouded lower down with their utmost pinnacles blazing free above the vapors. And where Thrawn's gates open on the river are great wharves of marble, with ornate galleons of fragrant cedar and calamander riding gently at anchor, and strange bearded sailors sitting on casks and bales with the hieroglyphs of far places. Landward, beyond the walls lie the farm country, where the small white cottages dream between little hills, and narrow roads with many stone bridges wind gracefully among streams and gardens. Down through this verdant land, Carter walked at evening and saw twilight float up from the river to the marvelous golden spires of Throne. And just at the hour of dusk, he came to the southern gate and was stopped by a red-robed sentry till he had told three dreams beyond belief and proved himself a dreamer worthy to walk up Thrawn's steep, mysterious streets and linger in bazaars where the wares of the ornate galleons were sold. Then to that incredible city he walked through a wall so thick that the gate was tunneled, and thereafter amidst curved and undulant ways, winding deep and narrow between the heavenward towers. Light shone through grated and balconied windows, and the sound of lutes and pipes stole timid from inner courts, where marble fountains bubbled. Carter knew this way, and edged down through the darker streets to the river, where an old sea tavern he found, the captains and seamen who had known in myriad other dreams. There he bought his passage to Selfars on a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of the inn, who blinked, dozing, before an enormous hearth and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. In the morning, Carter boarded the galleon bound for Selfars and sat at the prow as the ropes were cast off and the long sail down to the Serenarian Sea began. For many leagues, the banks were much as they were above Thran, with now and then a curious temple rising on the farther hills toward the right, and a drowsy village on the shore, with steep red roofs and nets spread in the sun. Mindful of his search, Carter questioned all the mariners closely about those whom they had met in the taverns of Selifaris, asking the names and ways of the strange men with long narrow eyes, long lobed ears, and thin noses, and pointed chins, who came in dark ships from the north, and traded onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Selifaris. Of these men sailors knew not much, save that they talked but seldom, and spread a kind of awe about them. Their land, very far away, was called Inganuk, and not many people cared to go thither, because it was a cold twilight land, and said to be close to unpleasant Lang, although high, impassable mountains towered on the side where Lang was thought to lie, so that none might say whether this evil plateau, with its horrible stone villages and unmentionable monastery, were really there, or whether the rumor were only a fear that timid people felt in the night 
when those formidable barrier peaks loomed black against the rising moon. Certainly men reached Lang from very different oceans. Of other boundaries of Inganic, those sailors had no notion, nor had they heard of the cold waste and unknown Kadath, save from vague, unplaced report, and of the marvelous sunset city which Carter sought. They knew nothing at all, so the traveler asked no more of far things, but bided his time till he might talk with those strange men from cold and twilight in Ganic, who are the seed of such gods as carve their features in Nagarak. Late in the day, the galleon reached those bends of the river which traverse the perfumed jungles of blood. Here, Carter wished he might disembark, for in those tropic tangles sleep wondrous palaces of ivory, lone and unbroken, where once dwelt fabulous monarchs of a land whose name is forgotten. Spells of the Elder Ones keep those places unharmed and undecayed, for it is written that there may be one day be need of them again, and elephant caravans have glimpsed them from afar by moonlight though none dares approach them closely because of the guardians to which their wholeness is due. But the ship swept on, and dusk hushed the hum of the day, and the first stars above blinked answers to the early fireflies on the banks as that jungle fell far behind, leaving only its fragrance as a memory that it had been. And although the night that galleon floated on past mysteries unseen and unsuspected, once lookout reported fires on the hills to the east, but the sleepy captain said that they had better not be looked at too much, since it was highly uncertain just who or what had lit them. In the morning, the river had broadened out greatly, and Carter saw by the houses along the banks that they were close to the vast trading city of Helaneth on the Serenarian Sea. Here the walls are of rugged granite, and the houses peaked fantastic with beamed and plastered gables. The men of Helaneth are more like those of the waking world than any others in Dreamland, so that the city was not sought except for barter, but it's prized for the solid work of its artisans. The wharves of Helaneth are of oak, and there the galleon made fast while the captain traded in the taverns. Carter also went ashore, and looked curiously upon the rutted streets, where wooden ox carts lumbered and feverish merchants cried their wares vacuously in the bazaars. The sea taverns were all close to the wharves on cobbled lanes, salt with the spray of high tides, and all seemed exceedingly ancient with their low black beam ceilings and casements and of greenish bullseye panes. Ancient sailors in those taverns talked much of distant ports, and told many stories of the curious men from Twilight Inganok, but had little to add to what seamen of the galleon had told. Then at last, after much unloading and loading, the ship set sail once more over the sunset sea, and the high walls and gables of Helaneth grew less as the last golden light of the day lent them a wonder and beauty beyond any that men had given them. Two nights and two days the galleon sailed over the Serenarian Sea, sighting no land and speaking but one other vessel. Then near sunset of the second day, there loomed up ahead a snowy peak of Aran, with its ginkgo trees swaying on the lower slopes. And Carter knew that they were come to the land of Uthnargai and the marvelous city of Selifarth. Swiftly there came into sight the glittering minarets of that fabulous town, and the untarnished marble walls with their bronze statues and the great stone bridge where Naraxa joins the sea. Then rose the green gentle hills behind the town with their groves and gardens of asphodels and small shrines and cottages, and far in the background the purple ridge of the Tamarians, potent and mystical behind which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and toward other regions of dream. The harbor was full of painted galleys, some of which were from the marble cloud city of Serenian, that lies ethereal space beyond where sea meets the sky, and some of which were from more substantial ports on the ocean of dreamland. Among these, the steersman threaded his way up to the spice-fragrant wharves, where the galleon made fast in the dusk as the city's million lights began to twinkle out over the water. 
Ever new seem this deathless city of vision, where here time has no power to tarnish or destroy, as it has always been, still, in the turquoise of Nath Porthoth, and the eighty orchid-wreathed priests, who are the same who built it ten thousand years ago. Shining still is the bronze of the great gates, nor are the onyx pavements ever worn or broken. And the great bronze statues on the walls look down on merchants and camel drivers, older than fable, yet without one gray hair on their forked beards. Carter did not at once seek out the temple or the palace or the citadel, but stayed by the seaward wall among traders and sailors. And when it was too late for rumors and legends to be sought out in an ancient tavern, he knew well and rested with dreams of the gods on unknown Kadath whom he sought. The next day he searched all along the quays for some of the strange mariners of Inganok, but was told that none were now in port, their galley not being due from the north for full two weeks. He found, however, one Thorobonian sailor who had been to Inganok and had worked with the onyx quarries of that twilight place, and the sailor said there was certainly a desert to the north of a peopled region which everybody seemed to fear and shun. The Thorobonian opined that this desert led around utmost rim of impassable peaks into Lang's horrible plateau, and this was why men feared it. Though he admitted there were other vague tales of evil presences and nameless sentinels, whether or not this could be the fabled waste wherein unknown Kadath stands he did not know, but it seemed unlikely that those presences and sentinels if indeed truly existed, were stationed for naught. On the following day, Carter walked up the street of the pillars to the turquoise temple and talked with the high priest. Though Nathrothoth is chiefly worshipped in Selfaris, all the great ones are mentioned in diurnal prayers, and the priest was reasonably versed in their moods. Like Adol in distant Ulthar, he strongly advised against any attempt to see them, declaring that they are testy and capricious, and subject to strange protections from the mindless other gods from outside, whose sole messenger is the crawling chaos, Nyarlathotep. Their jealous hiding of the marvelous sunset city shewed clearly that they did not wish Carter to reach it, and it was doubtful how they would regard a guest whose object was to see them and plead before them. No man had ever found Kadoth in the past, and it might be just as well if none ever found it in the future. Such rumors were told about that onyx castle of the Great One were not by any means reassuring. Having thanked the orchid-crowned high priest, Carter left the temple and sought the bazaar of the sheep butchers, where the old chief of Silifar's cats dwelt sleek and contented. That gray and dignified being was sunning himself on the onyx pavement, an extended and languid paw as his caller approached. But when Carter repeated the passwords and introductions furnished by the old cat general of Ulthar, the furry patriarch became very cordial and communicative, and told much of the secret lore known to cats on the seaward slopes of Uthnargai. Best of all, he repeated several things told him furtively by the timid waterfront cats of Silifaris about the men of Inganok. On those dark ships, no cat will go. It seems that these men have an aura not of earth about them, though that is not the reason why no cat will sail on their ships. The reason is this, that Inganok holds shadows which no cat can endure, so that in all the cold twilight realm there is never a cheering purr or homely mute. Whether it be because of things filtering over the impassable peaks from hypothetical laying or because of things filtering down from the chilly desert to the north, none may say. But it remains a fact that in that far land there broods a hint of outer space which cats do not like, and to which they are more sensitive than men. Therefore they will not go on the dark ships that seek the basalt quays of Inganok. The old chief of the cats also told him where to find his friend King Karanis, who in Carter's latter dreams had reigned alternately in the Rose Crystal Palace of the Seventy Delights at Silfaris, and in the turreted cloud castle of sky-floating Seranian. It seemed 
that he could no more find content in those places, but had formed a mighty longing for the English cliffs and downlands of his boyhood, where in little dreaming villages England's old songs hover at evening behind lattice windows, and where grey church towers peep lovely through the verdure of distant valleys. He could not go back to these things in the waking world, because his body was dead, but he had done the next best thing and dreamed a small tract of such countryside in the region east of the city, where meadows roll gracefully up the sea cliffs to the foot of the Tenarian hills. There he dwelt in a grey gothic manor house of stone looking on the sea, and tried to think it was ancient Trevor Towers, where he was born, where thirteen generations of his forefathers had first seen the light. And on the coast nearby, he had built a little Cornish fishing village with steep cobbled ways, settling therein such people as had most English faces, and seeking ever to teach them the dear remembered accents of old Cornwall fishers. And in a valley not far off, he had reared a great Norman abbey, whose tower he could see from his window, placing around it in the churchyard grey stones with the names of his ancestors carved thereon and with a moss somewhat like old England's moss. For though Caranes was a monarch in the land of dream, with all imagined pomps and marvels, splendors and beauties, ecstasies and delights, novelties and excitements at his command, he would gladly have resigned forever the whole of his power and luxury and freedom for one blessed day as a simple boy in that pure and quiet England, that ancient beloved England which had molded his being and of which he must always be immutably a part. So when Carter bade that old grey chief of cats adieu, he did not seek the terraced palace of Rose Crystal, but walked out the eastern gate and across the daisied fields toward a peaked gable which he glimpsed through the oaks of a park sloping up to the sea cliffs. And in time he came to a great hedge and a gate with a little brick lodge, and when he rang the bell, there hobbled to admit him no robed and anointed lackey of the palace, but a small, stubbly old man in a smock who spoke as best he could in the quaint tones of hard Cornwall. And Carter walked up the shady path between trees as near possible to England's trees, and climbed the terraces among gardens set out in Queen Anne's time. At the door, flanked by stone cats in the old way, he was met by a whiskered butler in suitable livery, and was presently taken to the library, where Karanes, Lord of Uthnergai, and the sky round Saranian, sat pensive in a chair by the window, looking on his little seacoast village, and wishing that his old nurse would come in and scold him, because he was not ready for that hateful lawn party at the vicar's, and the carriage waiting with his mother nearly out of patience. Karanes, clad in a dressing gown, of the sort favored by London tailors in his youth, rose eagerly to meet his guest, for the sight of an Anglo-Saxon from the waking world was very dear to him, even if it was a Saxon from Boston, Massachusetts, instead of from Cornwall. And for long they talked of old times, having much to say because both were old dreamers and well-versed in the wonders of incredible places. Granace indeed had been out beyond the stars in the ultimate void, it was said to be the only one who would ever return sane from such a voyage. At length Carter brought up the subject of his quest, and asked of his host those questions he had asked so many others. Karanes did not know where Kadoth was, or the marvelous Sunset City, but he did know that the Great Ones were very dangerous creatures to seek out, and that the other gods had strange ways of protecting them from impertinent curiosity. He had learned much of the other gods in distant parts of space, especially in that region where form does not exist, and colored gases study the innermost secrets. The violet gas, Sidegek, had told him terrible things of the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep, and warned him never to approach the central void where the demon sultan, Azathoth, nods hungrily in the dark. Altogether, it was not well to meddle with the Elder Ones. If they persistently denied all access to the marvelous Sunset City, it were better not to seek that city. Karanes furthermost doubted whether his guest would profit aught by coming to the city even were he to gain it. He himself had dreamed and yearned long years for lovely Selfars, 
in the land of Uthnargai, and for the freedom and color and high experience of life devoid of its shame, conventions, and stupidity. But now that he has come into that city and that land, and was the king thereof, he found the freedom and vividness all too soon worn out, and monotonous for want of linkage with anything firm in his feelings and memories. He was a king in Uthnargai, but found no meaning therein, and drooped always for the old familiar things of England that had shaped his youth. All his kingdom he would give for the sound of Cornish church bells over the downs, and all the thousand minarets of Silaforis for the steep homely roofs of the village near his home. So he told his guest that the unknown sunset city might not hold quite the content he sought, and that perhaps it was better remain a glorious half-remembered dream. For he had visited Carter often in the old waking days, and knew well of the lovely New England slopes that had given him birth. At last he was certain the seeker would long only for early remembered scenes, the glow of Beacon Hill at evening, the tall steeples and winding hills of quaint Kingsport, and the hoary gambrel roofs of ancient and witch-haunted Arkham, and the blessed miles of meads and valleys where stone walls rambled and white farmhouse gables peeked out from bowers of verdure. These things he told Randolph Carter, but still the seeker held to his purpose, and in the end they parted each with his own conviction, and Carter went back through the bronze gate in the Celiphorus, and down the street to the pillars to this old sea wall, where he talked more with the mariners of far parts, and waited for the dark ship from cold and twilight in Gunnach, whose strange-faced sailors and onyx traders had in them the blood of the Great Ones.